to Percussion Perspectives, a podcast by Henrik Knabor Larsen and Håkon Steine. Each episode of Percussion Perspectives features one or more musical artists in conversation about musical education, practice and aesthetic and sociological perspectives. Jonathan Hepfer is a percussionist, conductor and concert curator who runs Monday Evening Concerts, a concert series in Los Angeles which since the 1930s has housed premieres and performances with composers such as Igor Stravinsky, Arnold Schoenberg, Harold Budd, Frank Zappa, Pierre Boulez, the Jack Quartet and many, many other renowned composers and performers. In our chat, which took place over two evenings in the spring of 2021, Jonathan reflects on his education and his more recent practice as a curator. He explains how a major interest of his is to contextualize music with other art forms and to draw connections between different historical eras. Further, he explains his passion for cultural history and how he believes that making connections to other practices, such as visual arts, literature, philosophy or linguistics, makes our understanding of music richer. He reflects upon how he has worked to create a community in Los Angeles based on these ideas. I think I read somewhere 17 was when you started uh, classical percussion because you discovered a certain work or a composer. Yeah. Maybe I should also have on record that uh, full disclosure that we are good friends as well as colleagues and that we've um, known each other for probably close to 15 years now. Yeah, I think at least. So, John, um, tell me how it all started for you. I managed to sort of um, coerce my parents into getting me a drum set. And, uh, you know, you throw the pieces together, you know, you don't know what goes in what, and, you know, you throw something together, how, how does a hi-hat, you know, go, and you wind up with something that resembles, a, uh, you know, the drum sets that you've seen in the photos, and, you know, just put on smells like Teen Spirit and, you know, go nuts. So, in a sense, none of that has changed. Um, And and that's really where it begins. And and then you know you start to get a little bit of uh, you know you you put together your first um, rock and roll beat, and you're like, oh, this is kind of fun actually. And then you throw in a ghost note, you know, in, in three months, and then you're like, oh, that was even better. And sooner or later, you wind up uh, you know playing obscure Frank Zappa songs um, and trying to count the meter changes, and uh, you know do your best Vinnie Caliuta impression. But uh, so that was sort of like, I would say, pre-collegiate, um, you know, my my universe was just trying to f go, oh, this is really fun. And these challenges that, you know, just sort of, you know, now I can look back and say like the sort of dividing of time and the gridding of time and the search for the perfect texture, like the perfect angle of the. Uh, you know, where the wooden stick meets the hi-hat and the, which density of the materials. And, you know, you're sort of doing all these noble experiments in, in, you know, your parents' basement. 
if if you're lucky enough to have a situation like I did. And um, so then, but you know, basically, I'm, I I grew up in a very suburban place where you know you just don't think about careers in the arts. And you play a lot of sports, and I was very into uh, you know all, all of the the sports of my high school days. And then college rolls around, and I realize like I'm not quite as good at sports as some of the people around me who are like you know uh, going off to college for that. Um, and I also didn't really like give enough time and energy to my academic uh, endeavors to be positioned to. You know, do something that I really felt. You know, it's Bob Dylan talks about the that inner voice or that sense of destiny that you contain within yourself and you hopefully trust. Uh, but all I knew was I felt something of that, and I, I couldn't place it. I, I had no basis for this confidence in myself. Um, you know, there there was zero evidence of of what might come, but I, it was just uh, purely a feeling, and. Um, but, you know, on a sort of evidentiary basis, I had none of the requisite documents to get me into like the, the places that I thought I wanted to eventually wind up at. And I was very lucky because my parents were librarians at SUNY Buffalo. So in a way, I was um, the university was kind of obliged to let me in, even though I probably wouldn't have gotten in by you know normal standards. And I, I, I was like, oh, I really like playing drum set. Um, I'll go to school and just play drum set. And, you know, day one, you go in sight singing classes and, and they're like, all right, let's uh, solfege this thing. And, and I'm like, what's a treble clef? And it, everybody's like, do, re, mi, fa, Like, so, so I, I just, you know, curled into this shell where I was like, oh, I thought I was really good at playing drums. And like, now all of a sudden I'm trying to sight sing Schubert, Schubertian melodies and I, I don't even know who Schubert is. So, or I certainly don't know how he's relevant to, um, you know, the the 21st century. So, you know, I had this real sort of complex about like going, well, I thought I was in school to like learn about this thing that I really cared about. And I, it seems like all my attention is going towards uh, Haydn and Mozart and Beethoven. And like, I, you know, I couldn't give a fuck about these people. So there was a real sense of resentment in the early days, but I, I, I had the great fortune of being assigned to something called Contemporary Music Ensemble, which was, I think, I knew what what two of those words meant, and I was less familiar with the third, and I definitely couldn't see how it applied to music. But the very first piece, and this is a, a stroke of true cosmic fate, was John Cage's Living Room Music. That was my first assignment, um, as I mentioned, I, I genuinely did not know how to navigate a treble clef. I didn't know what a key signature was, I, but I was really um, quite proficient in, in the domain of rhythm. So living room music was a piece that sort of said, you know, maybe you do belong in music school. You're gonna, it's going to take you a long time before you figure out uh, how to connect the dots of everything that you're experiencing right now. But maybe there's a place for you and... Uh, and then, so, so I, basically my first thought, and this is also quite relevant was, I was like, whoa, this piece is so fucking like, so fucking brilliant. And I just, I loved, you know, you're tapping on books and you were like doing this, you know, Gertrude Stein text of, um, uh, and 
and, and you know, it just, it was so lo-fi in all of the best possible senses. And then I researched Cage and I was like, oh, wow, there's Zen Buddhism in the equation. There's Robert Rauschenberg in the equation. There's, uh, you know, DT Suzuki and there's, um, uh, you know, just like this wonderful universe. There's Merce Cunningham. There's like all these people who, who seem so energetic and fascinating um, and comfortable to me. Um, and, and all of it's playing to your strengths. But then I, uh, you know, the performance rolls around and all I could think was, damn, I really hope my friends from high school don't find out about this. <laughs> you know, you know, it was that initial sort of encounter of going like, oh, I like, I like shit that's really weird. Mm. And that like nobody around me is going to necessarily, like I couldn't rely on them also gravitating toward it. So I acknowledged my, let's say, uniqueness in this regard. Um, and, and so in a way, I think my, my life has been balancing the addiction of those, that sort of learning process of going like, oh, well, this really fascinates me. And oh, well, maybe there's a reason for it because there's this, this, and this element that also interests me and they sort of form this really beautiful constellation and I feel really alive when I'm like when the synapses are firing and this dot is connecting to this one and you realize that the logic of uh you know all of these things functions together in this really uh compelling way and eventually um so I, I feel like now at Monday evening concerts and I say it was a very cosmic uh, connection because if I'm I'm still sort of testing this hypothesis, but I'm pretty sure the living room in question was the living room where Monday Evening Concerts was born, which is the uh, Rudolf Schindler House on Mikkel Terena where Peter Yates used to live, and they would give concerts in uh, the living room of this space. So in a way, it just seems like one of those sort of cosmic uh, things that you just you look back on and you go, okay, like that's hard to ignore. Yeah. Um, but really just reconciling my own sort of, you know, in Heideggerian terms, like authentic pursuits of, you know, selfhood um, and just sort of going, oh, people don't seem to like, like uh, a much broader social community doesn't seem to understand what I'm doing or appreciate what I'm doing. And me sort of, I realized at a certain point that it was my role to sort of function as an ambassador or sort of perhaps even like a seducer uh, in the sense of just trying to make people fall in love with or see things from the perspective that was making me fall in love with it. And I just wanted to share those interests with the world. And I think that's what has led me to Monday Evening Concerts now. Nice. Talk a little bit about your studies. Um, I. I read your bio uh, in preparing for this talk and uh, you, you, you mentioned your teachers and how you kind of almost um, relate different subjects of study to, to specific names and uh, it probably reflects your personal focus at the time. Yeah, tell, tell us about that and how you also mentioned people from outside music and how that kind of influenced you. Yeah, uh, well, okay, so... So yeah, the the mentors, and I have to say, I've been um, just so incredibly blessed with um, 
just happening, you know, stumbling into the the rooms of, of some of these people, uh, you know, it, I, I would say for, for me, I, I really must pay homage to to these figures because, uh, you know, they, they've just given me so much and I, I just can't, in retrospect, envision a better series of, of um, yeah, mentors. Uh, so, you know, I had a, a really wonderful teacher in high school who um, I would say was just crucial for me in terms of like gathering the requisite initial energy to plunge, you know, plunge headfirst into the waters of this this very difficult, you know, ocean that we as contemporary musicians swim in, and. I think that, though, for me, when I was in Buffalo, after I had sort of discovered John Cage and um, and said, okay, I, I identify with this for some reason, and something in me is telling me go further with uh, this universe and keep pushing that forward to the best of your abilities, I had the great, great fortune of meeting two mentors at that time, uh, neither of whom uh, taught at the university, but... Um, have you know sort of uh, at least pointed me in in really interesting directions at a young age. Uh, the first of which was um, Gordon Gottlieb, who uh, was teaching at Juilliard. Uh, he, I, I think, he still does. Um, and my my mom had a, a like some sort of business reason for going to New York City, and I I said. I've never really spent any time in New York City. I'd love to go. And um, somebody suggested that I, uh, you know, try to try to hook up with Gordon Gottlieb while I was there. And so I it was I, I'm, I'm dating myself here, but I literally was just found myself in New York and I went to the uh, Yellow Pages. There, uh, there was a phone booth and I looked him up and he was listed and I called and he picked up and I said, "Hey, I'm in town. Um, I'm a, a drummer. I, I'd like to come and and have a lesson." And that was the first time for me that I really thought about um, the mechanics of of playing percussion, and I, I sort of saw it in a very different. I saw what I was doing in a very different light, and frankly, um, it, you know, sort of it. it, it uh, led me to a place where I realized that the intensity of what the students at Juilliard might be experiencing on a weekly basis. And I think that sort of made me go, okay, maybe in, you know, being in Buffalo and having it be the only community that I've known, uh, maybe I'm not, you know, I I didn't know whether I was positioning myself for a world-class career. <laughs> I, you know, it's like one of those things where you realize, I, I don't mean to imply that, that Buffalo is any, in any way, a, a, um, you know, not a, a major center of activity, but I think for a young person, it, just know, having a broader sense of what's out there. Because uh, I, I look back on Buffalo as, as just this major, major gift, but it was important for me to see many other things. And now that I've sort of seen the extent of the world that I've seen, I look back in buf- at Buffalo, um, where I'm from, and, and say like, like how incredible it was to 
sort of be reared in that environment. So Gordon was major for me because he established the sort of idea of classical training as being something very desirable and cool. And going to Juilliard then became my dream. Um, you know, and, and it really guided my energies um, in a very focused way toward developing that skill set. And I, because I just revered him so much, I wanted, I, I think I was able to make up a lot of ground um, in the, the classical world, because as I mentioned, like I was just interested in playing in punk bands in high school. So um, the other mentor would have been uh, the, the legendary Jan Williams who I had heard about through reputation. I had heard that he was the most uh, incredible figure. And, you know, like, you just meet Jan for like 30 seconds and your life is, uh, you know, beforehand you were one thing, after afterward you're another. Uh, totally something different. Uh, he's got these really uh, intense, uh, interesting eyes, like uh, the, the sort of gaze of a genius, like, the gaze of a, a profound artist. It, it was just like my immediate sort of encounter with him. And then he's got that, that like just incredible voice. <laughs> and anybody who who's listening to this should go to um, the Morton Feldman, Jan Williams interview to get a sense yeah, of yeah. what we're talking yeah. about. Um, and so, you know, you just meet him and you go, Oh, this is a different species of human being. And so I, um, I realized that he was a resource to me. Um, he was retired from SUNY Buffalo at that point. And I just started, you know, kind of harassing him on a daily basis. And like, you know, and maybe not daily, but like I, I was sort of like, you know, getting in, up in his sp space and bothering him and um, pestering him. And, and finally, I interviewed him, uh, you know, much in, in this sense. And I think he just sat down with me for, you know, three hours and answered all of my questions. And I was so fortunate to have that become uh, the basis of uh, percussive notes printed that as the cover story. And I, there I am, like 19 years old and, um, you know, feeling so inferior in the world of all things classical music because I feel like such a sort of outcast from the music school world because, you know, I'm supposed to be like solfeging um, Beethoven. And so it was this sort of like parallel track of feeling very inferior in one, uh, on one side of the tracks. And then on the other side of the tracks, I feel really energized and robust and sort of, you know, I was just trying to keep myself afloat on one side. And then um, sort of just dealing with the fact that I was different on the other side, um, different from people around me. But so the culmination of the, the Gordon uh saga was that after th three years of, um, you know, very intense work, um, I auditioned for Juilliard Manhattan School and Oberlin. And I hadn't really thought about Oberlin simply because I wanted to be in New York City and I wanted to be around that energy. Um, but a friend of mine, Jacob Greenberg, um, said to me, you know, you really ought to consider Oberlin. It's, it's where he went and he sort of he was one of the earliest members of uh, ICE, International Contemporary Ensemble. And, you know, Tony Soprano's duo partner and um, recorded, anyway, just a wonderful person that I was, you know, lucky to be around. And out of, I would say, like, 
politeness to Jacob because it really hadn't been on my mind simply because I wanted the energy of New York City, I applied to Oberlin. And thank God I did because um, it was one of those like blessings that I could only see from a distance where um, Oberlin was the, the one school that accepted me at that time. And um, I just remember meeting Michael Rosen, uh, who I still think of as Mr. Rosen, despite the fact that I'm a fully grown man now. <laughs> but to me, to, you know, like I'll go to my grave saying Mr. Rosen, um, because he just had that type of, like it, it took me a second to figure out why this guy was such a legend. Um, and I, I just remember him, I, I, I felt in some way with Michael Rosen uh, as, you know, it, it's like if you're a really rambunctious, um, you know, puppy golden retriever or something like that. And, you know, you're just bursting with this energy and you're so lovable and like every, you know, everybody who sees you loves you, but you jump up on people and you're, you're uncouth in a variety of situations. And, um, and so you're, you know, your, your owner, your trainer, you know, your master is telling you like, no, you have to, you sit, you stay, you, um, this is how you do this. And, and so, you know, the first year or so, you feel this resentment towards this person because you're like, oh, I'm, I'm so great and, and I have so much to offer and oh, I'm interested in this. And there you had Michael Rosen saying, uh, no, we're on page one of stick control yeah. <laughs> for as long as it takes. <laughs> like, no, uh, you know, six months later, you're on uh, page seven of accents and rebounds. And, and you, you know, you're, you're just sort of like, wow, I feel so restrained by this. But he's really, uh, what he's doing is he's taking the sort of, you know, diffuse piece of coal that you come in as and he's taking the time to sort of carefully construct your technique into a diamond. And that's a gift that lasts a lifetime. It's, it's a, I think, a, a major investment you have to make at some point in your life. Mm. And, and or at least that's been my experience, is that doing that once has sort of, I, I feel, endowed me with a lifelong sense of confidence mm. about my technique. And it's something that, uh, you know, I hope the percussive community will forgive me for saying, but it's something that is just will always be in the back of my mind and f fortunately has cleared the space for me to think about things that are much more important to me in the front of my mind. So it's given me a, a, a sense of creative freedom in the mm -hmm. long run. And that's why I attribute craft to Michael Rosen. Um, and, you know, in the long run, of course, I, I realized what a genius uh, teacher he was. Um, and I, and I want to be careful not to overuse the word genius, but I do think, uh, it applies in, in the cases of my mentors. Uh, so the, the next, um, you know, step on the path was Steve Schick came to give a masterclass at Oberlin when I was, uh, in my first year. And, um, it was, I transferred to Oberlin from Buffalo. And so in my first year of Oberlin, um, Steve comes and the first recital he gives, uh, the, the, you know, thing that was just like exploded my, uh, uh, you know, my 
my universe was, uh, I remember very vividly because it was Zanakis Rebon and Safa, uh, Globocar Touche and um, Corporel, uh, Fernihau Bon Alphabet, Alvin Lucier, um, Silver Streetcar for the Orchestra, and Stockhausen Zyklus. And that was one recital. Uh, and and I witnessed the masterclass on, on Stockhausen's Kontakte. And the just, I'd never seen a person think and operate the way he did. And I loved the fact that he never, Steve, for me, never claimed to be a musical aristocrat in the way that I think so many uh, people in, that I was seeing in the field sort of, they saw the elevation of the percussive craft to be uh, analogous to that of, you know, like a, name some other instrument that, you know, is front and center in, in the iconography of an orchestra. Um, he saw it as some, for what it was, and that was something different. And I thought that that was, that was something I really identified with. And he proved to me that it was sort of possible to go through life and assert one's difference from, from a norm and sort of even perhaps change the landscape of what was already out there through the compellingness of one's uh, what one could offer at the end of a vision. And so for me, it was so clear that immediately that that was somebody that I wanted in my life. And I think subconsciously I was working to impress him for the next three years uh, at Oberlin. And I was, you know, again, very fortunate that, uh, you know, I think there was one spot uh, open at UCSD the year I applied. And uh, somehow I, I was, you know, blessed by being admitted and so I knew immediately because I, I met with Steve one time after that. And we, <laughs> I was trying to get into the Lucerne Festival Academy at that time. And I was struggling through uh, the Donatoni piece called Mari for Mariba, yeah. and, which I chose specifically because I felt like it was the least known of all the the requisite repertoire. There was, you know, Donat. There was Omar, uh, of course, there was um, Philippe Uel's music, mm-hmm. and there was Jacob Druckmann's music. Where those were the standard options. And I was like, nobody's going to choose Mari. Like, n- nobody would be stupid yeah. enough, uh, except, except me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I chose this thing, but like, for the life of me, I could not figure out like, how to make it become a piece of music. Like, it just was so resistant to every everything that I was trying, you know, every trick that I had accumulated over the course of my education, I just couldn't make it work. And Steve and I had a, a masterclass on it, or a lesson rather. And I want to say I played the piece at the beginning of the hour. And the first movement, I think, you know, all told the piece is like seven minutes or something. I think I played one of the movements, which, you know, might've been like three minutes of playing. And, you know, it's just you start apologizing profusely because you're not good enough. And like, you you know, you can't do anything right in in the context of a lesson. Um, I mean, if if you're really challenging yourself, you're there's just no way you're going to be good in a lesson. Uh, so that was the case for me. And and so I started expecting Steve to say, oh, well, you know, you should use your outer mallet for, um, you know, to articulate this passage. And then perhaps you get a 
um, more two-tone mallet so, so as to articulate that. And somehow we wound up talking about um, Kafka's novels for 55 minutes and then the lesson was over. And at the end of that lesson, I thought to myself, I don't know what the fuck we just did, but like <laughs> I, I would study with somebody like that until, uh, you know, until I go to the grave. And, and the strange thing was a week later, I was playing the piece like nobody's business and I got into the Lucerne Festival. So I was like, okay, this dude might be onto something. And um, so, so I was very, very fortunate to have found Steve. And that's what led me to California. And because Steve um, himself had, you know, been with, uh, you know, 30 years before he had gone to see this sort of like magnificent, you know, uh, like brujo of the, of the Schwarzwald, um, Bernhard Wolf, I just felt like, like I was at a point where my technique was under control. My sort of ambition in life was becoming more and more sort of broadly cultural. Um, like, you know, it's like in the beginning, you have a snare drum etude and eventually you have, um, you know, maybe a mallet etude and then you have a piece of music and then you have, uh, you know, it's like you're, you're, the thing that you're working on expands and expands and expands. And I had gotten to the point where, you know, it's like the day that you realize, you know, you're playing in, in an orchestra on a triangle part or something like that. And, and you go, who's that guy reading a score? Um, and I like, Oh, he looks smart or she, she looks, she looks smart. Um, maybe I too, should place a score in my lap and pretend like I know how to read it. <laughs> and so you start to do that and you go, oh, actually I can kind of read this. And, um, and then you start to become aware of all the stuff that you were missing when you were just counting blank rests in your triangle part. And you start to go, oh, I have this new awareness of this thing. And then you go like, oh, maybe I should know what country this co composer comes from or like what age they belong to or um, what, who were the liter who were their friends? Who were their literary figures in their lives? Who were the artists that like, what kind of building were they living in? What kind of um, apartment were they composing this work in? You know, what were the circumstances of the life that led to this work that I'm now in the process of, you know, counting rests uh, in, on my triangle part? And so you start to like expand your field of view. And, you know, I, with Jan Williams in particular, I remember the day I, I met him, he said he had come back from New York where he had just been to see Christo and Jean-Claude's uh, the, Ga the Gates in Central Park. And, you know, I had nodded enthusiastically at the time, like I had any clue what the hell he was talking about. But, you know, I go home and like, Alta Vista or Yahoo'd, um, uh, you know, Christo the Gates. And, you know, I'm, I'm like, well, this guy's a musician. He shouldn't be interested in, in you know, there's a bunch of uh, Gates in New York City. And sooner or later, you start thinking about something and you go, oh, wow, this guy um, doesn't really limit himself to contemporary music. And, may oh, wow. He actually knows a, a little bit about Mozart and Beethoven and Haydn, 
uh, and perhaps even earlier music, maybe even Bach, maybe even Lully, maybe even uh, Machaut, you know, like Perrotin, Leonin. And I think having these people, these ambassadors who, you know, so much can go in one ear and out the other, or you can kind of look at it but not see it. But I think having a person in your life who serves as an, as an ambassador for that, uh, like for instance, meeting you was one of the one of those moments for me where, like, I had no idea who Hopkinson Smith was when when we met. But you say, "Oh, dear Jonathan, you should you must listen to the lute suites of Hopkins Hopkinson Smith, or um, you must listen to the Haydn sonatas of." Uh, uh, played by as rendered by Glenn Gould <laughs> and or you must listen to this Megadeth album um, or, uh, um, anyway we've had uh, all these different things in our lives that have not pertained to our direct field of contemporary music and so for me like the new currency of, of cool became people who practiced our discipline with what I perceive to be the the right uh, the proper amount of um, sort of like existential vigor and urgency and expertise and you know people who were really caring for this as though it 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 was their child you know like um, I, I think that nothing is a substitute for that level of care about something but at the same time I think if if you care about something to uh, enough of an extent, you want to go deep with it. And this is what brings me to Bernhard, because um, I really revered Steve for being such a cosmopolitan, a cosmopolitan figure, and the way that he could, uh, you know, speak several languages, and the way he just was so broad-minded about the world made me go, okay, I really should get out of the United States to the best of my ability and see as much of the world as possible. And so I wound up in Freiburg uh, where I met Bernhard. And Bernhard said to me this thing that I'll never forget, which was this idea of if we as musicians are planting a garden now, um, our job isn't to grow it horizontally, but vertically. In other words, we should not be expanding the surface of what we do, but expanding the depth of what we do. And that really shaped my life and made me know that I wanted so deeply to uh, study with him. And so in between master's and doctoral degrees, I was, um, you know, I, I spent two years on a day, a day um, grant in Germany with Bernhard. Uh, and my express intention with Bernhard was to learn nothing about percussion and just study philosophy with him. And so lesson number one was I went, I went in and I, I said, uh, you know, I, I had to, you know, suffer through my Knauer etude, um, which wasn't suffering at all. That's facetious because it, like the way Bernhard taught it was so magnificently um, layered and complex. And, and like that was, that was a very, very deep thing. But I said to him, you know, Bernhard, like, what do you know about, um, or I said, Herr Wolf, um, what do you know about metaphysics? What can, what can you tell a guy? And, and he said, oh, um, study Paracelsus. Uh, and he, he said that he was an ancient alchemist. And so it, it had to do with the metaphysical properties of turning 
ordinary materials into precious ones. And that to him was the basis of all art, was you take an ordinary material and you turn it into something more precious, uh, you know, as, as precious as gold must have been uh, back, in, back in those times. So uh, fundamentally, the lesson from Bernhard was an artist should, should aspire to be, become an alchemist. Beautiful. I, I, I can only shoot in, so many of his students probably remember the, the, the lessons with the etudes. That's where his thinking is so amazing, right? You don't, he needs like two or three notes of an etude on a snare drum, like one single surface. And he can kind of read your mind already, what you're thinking, what you're about. And I, um, I remember giving this little video speech on his 70th birthday because I couldn't be present. And it was like, I played a Delaclue or something. And he, he looked at me like, Hokon, you're not, you're not doing really well, are you? You're feeling, you're not doing, you're not in, you're not in check. And like a week before I had broken up with my girlfriend for five years. <laughs> I came across this um, this concept. I mean, I mean, it's probably like a, a rather elementary philosophical one, but I, I think I remember it becoming uh, being called the eighth inch drill bit philosophy, which is you you know you you say one day, oh, I need to go to the store because I need a eighth inch drill bit, and um, somebody says to you, well, why do you need that? And you go, oh, well, I have this drill and it needs like an eighth inch drill bit so I can uh, make a hole in the wall. And somebody goes, well, why, why would you want to do that? And you go, oh, because I want to install um, this shelf. And somebody goes, well, why? Uh, and you go, oh, because I want to put my things on it. And I want, you know, to put a picture of my, um, you know, the love of my life on, on the shelf or my family or, or whatever. And uh, somebody goes, well, why do you want to do that? And, um, you know, why is that important? And then you say, oh, well, because those things make me feel um, a certain way. And, and really, like, you know, looking at my family or, or my, my love makes me feel really good inside. And so after enough of those questions, you realize, like, with, within the eighth inch drill bit, you contain, oh, I'm just trying to find happiness or I'm trying to find pleasure. I'm trying to find meaning in life. And Bernhard was, I think, a master of saying, whatever it is you're searching for, uh, you know, Wittgenstein said, um, in order to go, uh, in order to go deep, you do not need to go far. And, and I think that that was a really, yeah, Bernhard was the, the quintessential sort of and and you know our, our travels um, to all the places where we went, and you went on many more of those voyages than than I did. But you know you'd be in uh, you know sort of rural rural Mongolia yeah. or something like yeah. that uh, at, in the middle of a you know Mongolian wrestling yeah. festival in Nadan, and and it was just so clear to me that he was his value system was so different from virtually mm. any other musician that I had encountered. And it went so f like, like I remember saying, like you saying, Oh, you could never impress him with um, a performance of Bon Alphabet or, um, you know, some sort of, you know, fireworks, pomp and circumstance, uh, you know, like pomp filled piece, like that would never get a response out of Bernhard. It could only be, you, you would. I remember you said to me once, uh, like Bernhard cares about the snake wrapped around the tree from which the rosewood yeah. is um, 
derived, which you are playing now in your uh, on your marimba, you know, Bach yeah, experience. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> this. Um, I think it boils down to his ability, which is how he operates in the world. I think this ability to animate things, right? To animate materials and to think beyond and to really. He's a person with a lot of fantasy, and uh, and so mm-hmm. percussion for him, I think it's just a tool for kind of projecting his fantasy. Well, the thing that Steve said, because I, I remember trying to choose between a couple graduate school programs, um, and you know, I, I was sort of in a position. I, I was like, at every uh, juncture where you had to like. Uh, do some rite of passage, like audition for graduate school or like try to gain employment in the world. I always thought the world was going to say to me like, you know what? It's been fun, but, uh, you're done. <laughs> like this yeah. is the, this is the end of your yeah. journey. Um, thank you for, thank you for writing, but, you, uh, you, you must, you must leave now. And, um, but I remember, you know, actually having some choices on my plate for grad school and being like, how did that happen? Um, but Steve, Steve Schick in, in this interview um, said that the first lesson he teaches all of his students in San Diego was, um, oh God, I should, um, <laughs> I hope you'll edit out this pause. But, um, th- oh, it was uh, that percussion is irrelevant. I was trying to figure out how he worded it. Um, that the percussion is irrelevant. And of co- again, that was a, a something that was meant, uh, not in jest, but, but with a degree of uh, facetiousness. And I think what he's getting at is that whatever it is you're trying to accomplish, hitting the drum isn't the, the thing that's accomplishing it. It's from, and what I took away from it was that it's really about the journey of, you know, the series of signifiers in somebody's life that comes after. Um, it, 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 it's the way a musical experience haunts somebody. It, it's the way, um, I, I've often said that the Bone Alphabet for, for me was the greatest waste of a year of my life that I could envision. Because it, with with all due respect to Maestro Ferniau, uh you know, to me, the the piece still it, it still looks like the most rigorous, um, sort of warped version of a, you know, Bach fugue, or a, a Beethoven Grosse fugue uh, um, that one could envision. But like, uh, you know, having a, you know, acid fever dream or something like that. But the piece winds up consistently sounding. I've always <laughs> said in jest. I must emphasize in jest, but like, um, you know, a garbage trunk, a, a truck full of, you know, bottles and cans, like driving down a bumpy road. <laughs> and so to me, the exercise there is really an interior one. It, be- it's, it belongs to the same category as, you know, everything that Proust talks about in, uh, in his novels, you know, like so much of, of, I think what we're doing deals with the way experiences haunt us for years the way um, the way that the learning process of that piece fundamentally shapes you as a human being, and um, then it's uh, like that Leonard um, Cohen line: "Like poetry is the ashes of a life that's burning properly." Um, and 
And I think that, that for me, Bone Alphabet and, and frankly, like many pieces of uh, the repertoire that I really hold most dear, those are sort of the ashes. The, the point is to keep the flame burning. And I think that in that way, uh, you know, as, as wonderful, uh, as yep. virtuoso and, and uh, incredible a percussionist or a musician that I find Steve Schick to be, to me, like he's an even greater virtuoso of communication. He's, he's somebody who does, he does the alchemical of making, making a room full of people who enter thinking that, you know, they have whatever preconceptions about contemporary music that they might have. You know, it's like, you know, cats walking on pianos and like, uh, you know, you know, that type of, yeah. you know, like m variety of my kid could do this type of, uh, preconception and he makes you walk away saying well that changed my life like that and 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 i think that that maybe is is what we're trying to do is um if you can change somebody's mind you can change the way they see the world and and i must bring up my one of my most recent mentors who's not a percussionist at all but a guy called hamza walker who is um you know, just he. I don't even quite know. It doesn't seem like curator is a sufficient enough word to, to to describe him. But I just remember the day I met him. He, I met him as um, this package arrived in the mail, and he opened it, and it was uh, a a book. It was a small square book, um, and I think it was called something like Geometric Permutations by Solowit. Or something like that. And, and he opened it and like, he couldn't even like breathe. He was so happy and excited. And, and he, you know, I start like kind of talking and, and he's like, shut the fuck up. Like just cause, cause I'm looking and I'm thinking like he's flipping through and it's literally just geometric shapes printed in black ink on white paper. <laughs> and, and I'm just thinking like, yeah, that's cool. That's Salouit. Like I've seen his, his work you know, a hundred times and I know the name, like I'm familiar, I, I can dig it. Like we're good. Um, and he's like, motherfucker, you better look at this. <laughs> and, and somehow like seeing in his eyes what that book meant to him, all of a sudden I saw, I saw what he was looking at. And ever since then, my world changed. Uh, not only seeing Saluit, but seeing, a vast variety of these works that don't exist anywhere other than in our some somewhere in our synapses i keep using synapses but i feel like you know with duchamp like the ready-made like the visual output is at that point in his life more more or less irrelevant it's about the the beauty of what what is happening in your brain and it's the same thing with proust it's the same thing with um mm. yeah just it, like I, i'm I, he's really made me um so much more attuned to 
the sort of interstate that we're trying to conjure as as curators. And that to me is even in something's absence. And, and I think Eve Klein's work uh, had the same sort of like tectonic shifting consequence in my life in my 30s as um, as discovering John Cage when I was 17 did. Uh, just, yeah. I, I think that that's the sort of new aspiration is sort of if you can change somebody's life by changing their perception, you have done your alchemical job as an artist or a curator. So that's the aspiration. So I think with respect to curating, um, for me, a large step, uh, and conveniently, we, we've sort of already covered this, this ground in part one, uh, but in that initial encounter, encounter with John Cage, um, uh, his living room music in, uh, must have been like 2001 or so, uh, in living room music, what I saw in John Cage uh, immediately was, well, first of all, it was music that I could actually play, as, as I mentioned, you know, at the point in sort of my classical training where I was, which is to say I didn't really know how to read a treble clef, but I knew how to read uh, rhythm. So already I, f I felt like this was a sort of outsider in the sphere of uh, classical music, which appealed to me. Um, like it was uh, something I owe my life to was that initial encounter with music that sort of demonstrated to me that it could be uh, beautiful and uh, just completely different than anything else that I was seeing around me at the same time. So immediately it resonated with me. Um, and so I think I was in a position of going, well, like, like who is this guy even? Like, where does it come from? Where does this text come from? Uh, you know, why, why is he tapping on books? Um, why is he, you know, sweeping on floor? Like, what's it, you know, in the, I, I turned to like Jerry Seinfeld, like, like what's the deal? And, um, and basically, you know, a, a cursory sort of like version of cage is that he was 
one of those like you know artistic focal points he was like at the epicenter of something that was an incredible shift in the world's perspective which meant that just like right off the bat you had uh like a strong connection to visual art um uh, robert rauschenberg is the first name that's really coming to mind to me but of course it included a lot of other figures from that arena um there was a text, you know, by Gertrude Stein in the piece. And I thought to myself like, oh, well, well, I wonder who Gertrude Stein is, or, you know, I wonder who Robert Rauschenberg was. And then I knew kind of loosely what Buddhism was. Um, I didn't know as much about Zen Buddhism and I certainly didn't know the name DT Suzuki, but somehow all of these ingredients came together right from the beginning and made me go, like, I, I don't know who this this dude, John Cage, is, but, like, there's enough here to get me, um, you know, to, to sustain my interest through this experience, and it's going to, it, it made me hungry to learn more. And it made me sort of hungry to say, like, oh, well, what else is, is out there? And I think that, like, a big basis in being a curator, uh, I, I remember... This was, maybe a little like uncouth of me to say right now, but uh, or improper given the historical circumstances. But in 2001, you know, I, I think I encountered Morton Feldman's Give My Regards to 8th Street, which is, you know, just one of those sort of biblical classics of, um, you know, American experimental classical music. Um, and And I was watching at the time, like, you know, Woody Allen's movies like Annie Hall and Manhattan and Hannah and Her Sisters. And the thing was, um, you know, in reading, in reading Morton Feldman's writings and interviews and watching those films, what you constantly had to be doing is you had to sort of like be aware enough about culture in order to get a lot of the punchlines or in order to like follow along with a lot of the references so, you know, if you could get through a Morton Feldman essay or you could under, or, you know, for God's sakes, and uh, taking it back to Wayne's World, which is a thing I didn't expect to return to here, um, <laughs> you know, one of the jokes in that concerns Kierkegaard. You know, he's, he's sort of doing his pseudo-intellectual impression and he, and he drops a Kierkegaard reference. And, you know, in third grade, I didn't, you know, I certainly didn't know who Kierkegaard was, but the name sort of like stuck with me and I, I registered it and always was like, I bet you Kierkegaard's like somebody worth knowing. And and so you just sort of develop this, or maybe like my my skill in life has, has been to sort of, I don't even know quite how to say it, but to have a, a good radar for names that come into my uh, universe that I don't know. And for me to be aware enough to make note of them, to write them down, to sort of compile them into a list. And then like when nobody's looking, you go um, into the library or into the, uh, onto the internet and you say, well, who, who are these guys? Who, who are these women? Like, who are these people who... Um, who seem to be very important to the people that I care about or the people whose work I am drawn to. So sooner or later that it's, I don't know whether the, the root model or the rhizome model here is more appropriate. Probably both actually could apply, 
but you do s- develop this sort of genealogy of um, people that you're interested in. And I would say that my blog, um, you know, Islands from the Archipelago, uh, shout out Roger Reynolds, um, was was really just an attempt to m- make that sort of like intrinsic desire that I have um, into a, a public uh, you know, to bring that into a public space so that people can just sort of see how I'm constantly trying to get new ideas in the world. Um, so one of the things that occurred to me at, at some point, and, and I, I want to say it was, it was probably after Steve Schick's visit in, in Oberlin, was this sense of realizing that you know, it's like when you listen to Glenn Gould's um, performances of Bach, you know, you start having to ask the question uh, of whose music you're really listening to. Um, because it's so, on one hand, it really belongs to uh, Bach. Obviously, he wrote the music, he wrote the notes, and Glenn Gould is faithfully, you know, pressing the keys of the piano at, you know, where and when he's supposed to. But at the same time, the the musical you know language all belongs to to Bach and I felt that that was really exemplified by uh, Steve Schick's recital at Oberlin this must have been circa 2004 or so you mean it belongs to 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 uh, Glenn Gould you mean? well uh, well yeah Steve would would sort of occupy the role of Glenn Gould where in in the case of you know whether it was Xenakis or Globoka or um, Lucier or Fernihau or Stockhausen, you, you it, it, it was like watching you know Marlon Brando inhabit a role or something like that, mm, yeah. where where you just go like I, I don't know whether I'm interested in the film or whether I'm interested in Marlon Brando, because <laughs> yeah. the the performance itself yeah. was just so uh, captivating, and so That's such a strong signature, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so so I guess where I'm going with this is that sooner or later I realized that um, for me personally, I I felt like I could get to a place where I could do a passable version of any solo work that I was performing, but I, I somehow felt like that was not enough. Like it was like that was the the absolute baseline of the experience of what performing should be about and anything that came after that, which, which is to say you have to, like, I wanted to play music the way that like method actors or like people who have studied Stanislavski or whatever, the more uh, updated version of Stanislavski in acting, um, you, you know, <laughs> like when I'm, when I, you know, I was learning bone alphabet, I would say, don't address me as Jonathan, <laughs> address me as address. I only go by Brian now. <laughs> that, uh, obviously I'm kidding about that, but, but there, there was this sense of like playing the, the music, putting the music on the stand, um, and, you know, faithfully executing the notes was, was the absolute minimum. Mm. that you could do in in that context and i I know that you have a yeah sorry to interrupt but i I know that you have a kind of fetish of rewriting scores uh, as a process of um dissecting and uh yeah and and also remembering them in your kind of own own personal hand notation yeah yeah that that whole practice was um it, it 
I think it may seem elaborate, but really for me, it was a survival mechanism because as I mentioned, I, I was learning how to uh, learn treble clef at, you know, age 17 or 18. And, and so I've always felt like I had this sort of um, need for remedial attention in my life where like every, you know, compared to a, um, a kid who's been, you know, thrust into piano lessons at age four, I'm just, I never, ever will be up to the level of somebody who's had that sort of what I consider to be a type of privileged experience. I think my privilege is a very different variety, which is I have the privilege of absolute ignorance for such a long period in my life. And I think that has provided me with a different type of musical insight, which has proven to be uh, very valuable. So really, yeah, that whole practice of developing um, shorthand was really a survival mechanism for me not being able to read scores in a way that I found, like I, I was never the, the type of guy that you could just put like a marimba score up on a stand and then, you know, in, in two minutes I'm, I'm playing the piece. It always had to sort of go through this, um, uh, you know, filter of uh, the sieve of memory and like it had to inhabit my my body in this way. And then like after two or three days, perhaps I could, you know, I, I could play something, but, um, I was never a, in any way a decent sight reader or even a good reader. So I, yeah, that was the basis of, of that thing. Um, but to bring it back to this Stanislavski thing, I think I, I realized like, I just, I, I've always considered this to be something. So when I read Thoreau's Walden, at a certain point, he says, uh, like, the gist of it is a guy wants to become a poet. And so he, he decides that there are two ways to go about that. One of which is you go to, you know, he would walk over um, across from where he lives to Harvard University and study in the um, literature or poetry department. And, you know, like after a course of education of four years, you... Um, you've studied poetry and you are now qualified to be a poet. Um, another way of doing it is to ask yourself the question, well, how does a poet live? And so you go in the, into the woods and you live as a poet, you know, in at least his conception should live. Ergo, uh, you become a poet if you live like a poet. So, um, it, you know, uh, Steve Schick used to uh, quote Stanley Kunitz who said, I don't work on the poem, I work on the poet. And and I suppose that's maybe where I've I've felt most strongly as an interpreter, is that you know, getting I, I always want to obviously respect the score and get get it to its its baseline where I'm, you know, faithfully executing all of the, you know, parts of it. But it's clear to me that that's the first step and not the last step. Uh, what goes beyond that is kind of, you know, living the life of um, an interpreter, living the life of somebody who is going artistically to the place that that um, composer, um, you know, sort of, you sort of have to drink from the same wellspring. And, and I've often said that in terms of how I like to work with composers, um, I, and I may or may not get into trouble with this, but um, but I really don't love being in the same room as them uh, when we're rehearsing. 
what I, what I would privilege is to just talk to them. I, I would say, you know, let's go and have coffee. Let's, you know, spend, um, you know, an evening together having dinner and, and having some drinks and like, let's take a walk. Let's, let's like, you know, live, let's, let's do a little bit of living <laughs> in the same space and just see, um, what we learn from each other. And we'll sort of like extract the essence of whatever that viewpoint is and apply it to your music. And in, in my experience, and, and I've had to do this kind of often in California, whereas I think people in central Europe, uh, at least in the type of musical arena that, that I, you know, inhabit, like, uh, I've, I've really found that you have to extract an essence from something and try to in, in, inject it into an interpretive experience rather than simply, you know, sort of passively, you know, having a score in front of you and saying, Oh, I, I think that this is what should be done now. Mm. So anyway, that, that was a bit of an aside, but it brings me back to this original concept, which I think occurred to me when I was 17, whether I knew it or not, which was this idea of music image text. Um, meaning that, uh, for me, like the, the great drawing Buffalo, like the thing that I loved doing more than anything was visiting the Albright Knox Art Museum. And uh, you go in and it's like the famous um, orange and yellow Rothko is on the wall and the really important Jackson Pollock painting. I think it's Convergence. I, I can't remember whether that's the one or, or another, but... Um, uh, a really beautiful Clifford Still painting, I think from 1957. Uh, lots of William de Kooning, lots of, uh, you know, Robert Motherwell, like this absolute treasure trove of sort of, let's say like abstract expressionist era. Um, not all of it's abstract expressionist, of course, but um, uh, painting that sort of belonged to that type of mid-century Franz Klein, you know, like that type of art making which prepared me very well for discovering Morton Feldman. And, you know, independently I'd been like reading James Joyce and Samuel Beckett. And then you go, oh, Morton Feldman's collaborators <laughs> were Mark Rothko and Samuel Beckett. Maybe this is a guy <laughs> whose music uh, might appeal to me. So um, I started realizing that I felt really rewarded by pursuing that type of um, just like understanding the the scaffolding of culture and how like the various uh you know lintels and beams um uh function together uh in, in order to you know build a, a structure uh, you know the structure of of culture so and at a certain point um i encountered the the Roland Barthes um book called i think i think the order is image music text which has the the grain of the voice um, and and plenty of other essays, and I realized that um, I wasn't maybe the first person to <laughs> make the observation, <laughs> but but I started to become obsessed with these these scenes where um, you know, like uh, I, I don't know whether Ferdinand de Saussure um, would be Roland Barthes' predecessor in the field of semiotics, but. Um, but Saussure had these two ways of looking at language. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sorry to any, you know, linguists or semioticians that I'm uh, not, I'm, I'm probably not giving these concepts justice, but my understanding is you have um, synchronic analysis and diachronic analysis. 
And the synchronic analysis is you take a, a moment, or, you know, a minute in history or a second in history, and you do a Polaroid, you know, a snapshot of that moment in history. And you sort of look at the um, a language as it has evolved up until that second in history. And you look at all of the pieces of language and you sort of place them, you realize like, a, you know, on a chessboard, a piece, um, you can't play a game of chess if you just have a single piece on the board. You need a certain amount of pieces in play in order for there even to be a game taking place. And the chess is an entirely uh, relational game, meaning that pieces have relationships to each other and they sort of constitute um, who's winning or, you know, like what the, what the possible moves can, that can be made are. And language functions as uh, pieces on a chessboard. So a word in and of itself doesn't mean anything, but two words together have a relationship and three words together can even make a phrase. So um, that in any case is a synchronic analysis, is a freeze frame of exactly like a moment in history. Whereas a diachronic analysis is this way of sort of charting the evolution of language and figuring out how, you know, various cultures, um, you know, it's like studying the etymologies of, of all the words and, and how, where a word might've started and versus how it's used today. Um, so this this is my quintessential problem in life is all the the tangents. <laughs> this this direction, right? Diachronic. Yeah, I mean, I I think of it. Going I, I think of it yeah. as the opposite. Actually, I think of diachronic as being sort of related to the concept of timelines, whereas vertical is just like a sort of uh, a, a synchronic would be a vertical yeah. snapshot. But that, I think you can just as easily do the opposite in your brain. Etymology would. Uh belong to the the origin of a word yeah. for instance right that's a diachronic uh research on a word right? i think so I, I mean that's my understanding yeah um yeah but oh uh, yeah so so in terms yeah okay good i i'm back <laughs> I, i remembered where i was in the thought so if you look at i i started to get really interested in let's say uh you know a geographical location and a decade let's say, uh, turn of the century Vienna, where you have, you know, Gustav Klimt and Egon Schiele and like all of the architects of the Art, uh, Art Nouveau and Vienna secessionists. And then you have, um, you know, writers like, I don't know, Elias Canetti and Karl Kraus. Um, I don't know if Stefan Zweig would be part of that coterie. I, I don't know. Like, so you have painters and then you have, um, Uh, literary figures, and then you have Gustav Mahler, and you have Richard Strauss, and then you have Arnold Schoenberg, and you have uh, Weber, and you have Berg, and then you have, uh, you know, so if you sort of freeze frame, you have a very interesting sort of like synchronic analysis on your hands. You know what I mean? Like uh, it, the way that all of the parts interrelate, relate, or let's say you have Paris in the 20s, where you have Gertrude Stein, you have Picasso, you have Varez, um, and Satie, And you have Cocteau, I would imagine, like, you know, just sort of the, the figures in a Gertrude Stein, um, like autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, which is a great book. And um, I would highly recommend anybody like interested in culture, just uh, take a look at Myra Kalman's recent publication. Um, so, yeah, I mean, taking a work like Satie's Parade, 
where you had, uh, I think it's at least the collaboration between uh, uh, between Cocteau and Picasso and Satie. And I want to say that maybe like Diaghilev was involved. And, it, you know, just all these figures from various uh, parts of culture operating operating together. And, uh, you know, this, this goes for... Um, you know, Richard Serra and Philip Glass in, in the uh, perhaps late 60s, early 70s, and their proximity to Robert Maplethorpe and Robert Wilson and, um, uh, you know, Patti Smith and, uh, you know, the, the Arthur Russell and Julius Eastman and all the figures, um, uh, Meredith Monk somewhere in the equation. Like, so anyway, there were scenes and I became really interested in it. And in Los Angeles, one of the things that I constantly find is that very few people that I'm talking to, you know, like I, I, I want to say a lot of people are, are really, at least in theory, interested <laughs> in classical music. But, but I mean, not to, I don't mean this as a slight to, to anybody I encounter, but I think it's just a sort of matter of fact in culture that, um, you know, like people generally know Claude Debussy's Claire de Lune and they know the Gymnopédie of Satie and, um, and they know who Mozart and Beethoven are um, and Bach. But, you know, in terms of like knowing this, anything with the degree of specificity that we've become accustomed to in conservatory life, um, even very, very erudite people are, um, you know, like you have to, you benefit from giving them a little bit of help and, and sort of guiding them, um, which I think is, is our privilege as people who have, um, gone down this, this path to the extent that we are. So we're, uh, I saw myself perhaps in LA as being like, to the best of my ability, a sort of like cultural Sherpa, um, who was guiding people on behalf of classical music. And, and something that I constantly find is that like people want to be interested. They, they are not, they're in fact not working against you through um, the things that they don't know, but it's just that they don't know those things yet. And if you guide them with um, a sort of generous hand and um, meet people where their interests already are, if you know history well enough and you know this sort of diachronic model of what we're talking about where you know, this person leads to this person leads to this person leads to this idea. Um, then you, what you can do is very generously uh, sort of take somebody from a place where they do feel comfortable and they, you know, they're on ground that they really love and you can get them to a place where there may be somewhere where they, they didn't know they were capable of loving. Like a lot of, um, like my grandfather, for instance, always said for him, classical music uh, stopped with Debussy. And I thought that was really interesting because the breaking points in uh, three places in, in Europe, uh, I, th I think of as being the place where Mahler becomes Schoenberg. You know, the two were contemporaries and had quite a bit of overlap. And early Schoenberg sounds like late Mahler. Um, and of course, later in the century, it becomes something radically different, uh, but still, still sort of like imperceptibly related 
related on some uh, deeper level. And the same is true with um, Debussy and Varese. You know, the early Varese sounds remarkably like uh, Debussy. Um, so you look at you look at the and then the third would be Rimsky-Korsakov and um, Stravinsky, I think. Where if you look at early Stravinsky, it sounds quite a bit like late Rimsky-Korsakov, and then of course, like uh, a piece like the Rite of Spring, would completely uh, bring us into the 20th century. So, I guess what I'm saying is, if you acknowledge that there's this really interesting place, um, it, it's like showing somebody um, the you know Marcel Duchamp fountain uh, and saying like, oh here's this great work of art. And they're, they're, you know goddamn well that they're looking at this thing and going, that's a motherfucking toilet, dude. Like, that's a <laughs> urinal. Like, yeah. are you out of your mind? Like, and to their credit, they're right. <laughs> they're not wrong about that. But I think that in those situations, or, or for instance, somebody saying, look at um, Cage's uh, 4 minutes 33 seconds, and, and saying, well... I mean, literally, this is a silent piece of music. You know, what are you thinking going to bat for this? Um, but I think if you're positioned well enough and you know this history, then you can show as a series of logical steps, um, each of which are incredibly vital and beautiful, you can show how we start with Satie, for example, and we get to the uh, four minutes, 33 seconds of Cage. And we can show every step along the way wh where and how art changed and why four minutes and 33 seconds was an absolute necessity in the 20th century and why the ready-mades of Duchamp are s so poetically charged and like absolutely belong in, in the sort of pantheon of, you know, the, the greatest artwork uh, maybe maybe that's problematic language, uh, but but in it, it belongs somewhere in our hearts and minds, in a place of um, reverence. I think that's up to each individual, but it's certainly in, in mind there. For you, for you, it's a bit of a kind of intellectual puzzle, like a glass bed game or something, to f to find all these connections, right, and to f to figure out the whole mosaic of the art world, or where these things interconnect and how they belong to each other, how one thing evolves into another um how do you certainly how do you relate that uh, and a lot of it and honestly is, is european and how do you relate that to the kind of current society in la and how you're surrounded by popular culture by a film industry by a lot of visual culture um what's the what's the connection there how do you how do you make that relevant in in um in that context of the kind of broader broader culture uh, uh, yeah well uh, okay so the first thing I would say is there's a certain amount of common sense um, that I think I needed to return to. Um, I, I think that uh, there's some episode of Chef's, Chef's Table that I encountered, and, and the guy, I think it was an Italian chef, I, a very famous Italian chef who was going into the mountains to um, visit, I think it was like a goat farmer or something like that. In any case, uh, somebody who was instrumental in the making of this very sort of like divinely uh, processed cheese, or not processed, but um, cultivated cheese. And, um, he, you know, he, he, it was kind of almost like a mountain shepherd or somebody like that, like somebody living a very, very 
simple life and away from you know the world of restaurateurs and Michelin stars and you know kind of the opposite of that. But uh, you could tell that the the guy who was the famous chef in the equation was looking at this, uh, you know, the, the simple man on a, a mountain uh, with complete and utter sort of you know reverence and adulation for for what he did. And, and I, there was this phrase that he said that I, I thought was just so beautiful, which is, "There's um, what it's like." There's no quality in the ingredient if there's no quality in the person who makes the ingredient. And so on a superficial level, which I think is something that maybe we all have, those of us who are deep in, into this thing that we, you, know, you and I are talking about, we all have a deep aversion to you know, the superficial. But there, I think, is a sort of common sense thing of just like everybody has a certain amount of time and attention and energy to spend on something. So, you know, like when you go to the Louvre, do you spend all day on a single painting or do you kind of like wander around the galleries? Um, And and I think that it's not a sign of disrespect um, that people may have a sort of um, ephemeral relationship with what we're doing. So we have to focus on surface. We have to focus on um, the attractiveness of something, but there's no reason that something that has a, a compelling or beautiful surface um, can't also have really deeply cultivated and, um, you know, just yeah, well cultivated ingredients. And so my job as a curator is to sort of create something that wherever you are in the equation, whether you are coming fresh from uh, a colloquium at Harvard, or whether you know you don't you don't know how to pronounce um, uh, you know Haydn's last name. Like you know, like no matter where you are in the equation, um, the door is open to you. And I want and I deeply can care uh, deeply care about you walking away with an experience where you are hopefully scratching your head, but in a way that makes you want to know more. The last thing I would ever want for an audience member um, would be to alienate somebody or make them feel as though they weren't sort of intellectually or artistically up to the task. Um, So there's a part of every concert that I think is deliberately drawing people in on a somewhat, I, I would say kind of like common sense basis, like, you know, people generally like consonant music. <laughs> they like, you know, like there are any number of uh, attributes that you can, that you can, you know, sort of assess in a piece of music. But you know, when, when something's just like sublime, I mean, Hildegard von Bingen's music is sublime. Machaut's music is sublime. Schumann's music is sublime. Uh, Debussy's music, like it's, it's hard to miss <laughs> with a well-performed, a well, a well, um, cared for version of, of any music, but, but then you have music, which challenges all of those assumptions of what beauty can be. And that takes you to a very different place. And it, it, uh, cha- it poses new challenges for the ear, the eye, the, the brain. Um, and it asks new things of us as listeners. 
So the thing that I try to try to do with each of the concerts is find an equilibrium where I think, you know, no matter how advanced you are in, uh, you know, quote, quote, advanced you are in our discipline, like Perrotin's music is always going to be just the most sublime thing. So whether you're day one or day, you know, 50,000, like, Perrotin's music is going to be a pleasure to walk into and hear. Um, but I don't know, like, uh, you know, you, you and I would walk into certain environments and say, like, the, perhaps perhaps the criticism would be, oh, that's not hardcore enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But for the other, you know, 99% of the audience, they're thinking, oh, that was hardcore enough for me. And then maybe like perhaps even far too hardcore. Mm. Um but it's just about trying to find a place where the entire audience, um, which, you know, we've, I've been, I'm proud to say it has, has largely been like 400 plus people per concert for the past few years. Um, finding a place where everybody walks away from that saying like they're haunted by the concert in the right Mm. way. I, I haunt for me is like, um, the verb that I always use for any type of art world experience that sticks with me for a while and kind of takes me back to a place where something in me, anytime I have a deeply meaningful experience, whether it's watching Bergman's persona or going to the Pierre Wieg exhibition at LACMA or, uh, I don't know, the, the first time I saw a, a piece by James Turrell or heard a work of Eliane Radig or, you know, like any of those things kind of haunt you in the most positive sense. Um, and you just sort of want to be quiet and you want to, you, you just want to be alone with your thoughts and sort of just enjoy this, the gift of what it means to be alive and to have senses yeah. for a little while. I've- couple of follow-up questions we can include these or not but the first is um are you, do you just trust your own taste when you curate or do you have to um filter them through some kind of board or uh, do you debate those choices with somebody or ar- argue why you choose certain things and not others and the second one is um do you curate with that specific acoustic space in mind the the zipper hall um a classic concert hall like a shoebox with uh, nothing fancy no visuals no pa and how does that affect your choices that you have basically a an empty acoustic hall uh you don't have multimedia you don't have uh, loudspeakers there's a lot of things that are unusual about that these days it's kind of the experience of acoustic listening well okay so there are there, there are, let's say, layers to that response. So when I, the, the great, I would say, privilege of directing <laughs> Monday evening concerts was uh, when I came in maybe uh, six years ago, the series was, was sort of at a point where, um, you, you know, like it's, it's a very, very old series. It's, uh, I think, 82 years old on April 14th this year. It'll, it'll be 82, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, you know, there, there were a lot, it had very humble beginnings on a rooftop and then it kind of grew into this, uh, thing where, you know, I don't know, there would be like a thousand people coming to, 
these concerts at a certain point in in its history, and then it went through a long uh, phase at Lac in residence at LACMA, and then it was let go in 2004, and then it was sort of rescued by by these independent figures, and so it's, it existed as an independent series. And um, my predecessor, Justin Ursus, who was the director before me, the fourth director of the series in 82 years, um, <clears throat> he, you know, like he, Justin uh, ran it as like something he was deeply interested in, but wasn't treating as his like metier in life. You know, he, and I, I have nothing but the highest praise uh, for Justin, who, uh, you know, was like a great mentor and, and coach to me. Uh, and and I think really, like, uh, shepherded the, the series through some really rough... It, it just, he, he was magnificent in his role. But I think he had a different sort of ambition than I did. And when he came to a juncture in his life where it was kind of... Um, you know, a, a lesser priority for him. The series had fallen into a state of like a little bit of financial, uh, not dereliction or disrepair, but the the resources had become quite meager. And that was right when I took over. And so at first, I didn't have a sense of what was meager or not meager. I just felt like a wildly rich human being because I was getting to come in and and just go, oh, my first year, I want to program Steve Takasugi's sideshow next to, I don't know, um, Schoenberg's Pierre Lunaire. And can we afford it? I don't know. Um, <laughs> you tell me. Um, like, I didn't have any idea what a budget was or how, how anything really functioned. But, you know, the, the board sort of helped me go like, oh, well, you have to allot this amount. And this, these are about the costs for this. And so we managed to get through a season where... Um, all of my interests as a latter stage graduate student were sort of um, addressed where I conducted the Grise Quatre Champs, for instance, and the Sherino Gesualdo pieces, um, Le, Le Voci Sotto Vetro. Um, and it, it was a sort of like late grad school fantasy season for me. Um, it was very modest, very humble. Um, but by the second year, um, I was kind of out of grad school by that point and sort of starting to really think of my professional life and also starting to have to deal with things like grant writing and, and, you know, appealing to donors and and stuff like that. Like basically sort of figuring out, oh, well, how do resources accumulate such that we are able to um, do this sublime thing that we aspire to? Um, and that became that was a completely new awareness because I realized that grant panels really have priorities, and donors have priorities, and um, and you know, like the board will have priorities, and the audience will have priorities, and I will have priorities, and my friends will have priorities, and so I realized that all of these things. Basically, I had to be at the epicenter of all of these um, constituent series of interests and desires. And again, um, like I, I've never been somebody that that says, "Oh, 
these people are just idiots or they don't, they're not um, smart enough to see the way I see things. I, I think that there's a, a sort of lovely chance to simultaneously shape the world and be shaped by the world. And, you know, being, you and I have talked about the sort of like um, imaginary islands of um, higher education where, you know, we, we, I think, necessarily build these communities for ourselves where we give great import to, give great importance to uh, things which, which we realize don't necessarily make, <laughs> carry the same weight <laughs> in day-to-day conversations with people who aren't sharing our, our specific discipline. And, and so you, ha- you sort of begin to realize like, oh, well, I, it behooves me to be able to think about what I'm doing in a much sort of more a broader and, and more general sense. And it really behooves me to be able to communicate the things that I love about music in language that is understandable to, you know, that, that draws people in rather than pushes them out. Um, so I would, I suppose my answer to that is I have a very, very supportive, it's a very small board, but they're incredibly supportive and their voices are in the room, but as sort of friends and support systems. And, um, you know, like I hear their voices on my shoulders, but the good news is that it's a, it's a consonant relationship. It's a harmonious relationship. So I never really find myself going against the grain of, of somebody's perspective. And I think that, my, like I said, I feel that I'm able to sort of like take in a bunch of uh, all of these different points of view. And then my job is as a political figure, not meaning uh, in, in the sense of party politics, but in the sense of, you know, the Greek polis, like, you know, interacting with many different factions of um, my community um, I, I sort of take all of that information in, and I, I sort of, you know, to return to this like Heideggerian sense of like resoluteness unto death, um, and the pursuit, the re- relentless per- pursuit of authenticity, you sort of take all of that information and you shape it like clay into something that comes out and it still feels like yours. And at the same time, it feels like everybody, you know. And, and I think that that's been a really remarkable thing because it, it turns out that as a grad student, I didn't know everything. <laughs> and, and, you know, if you are paying attention to the world, hopefully you are, are hopefully you're being shaped. And nevertheless, there is something in you, which is that Bob Dylan thing that we spoke about, that, that sense of destiny and that sense of like authentic self, which is constantly trying to assert itself into the world but there's a there's a certain harmonious balance that needs to be struck between you and the world and i find that when all of that is in tune um the resources tend to flow and people tend to be interested and they tend to trust you as a curator they trend, they tend to trust your point of view tell us about some of the things you've you've learned along the way that you didn't expect to uh, be confronted with or that you yeah well uh, 
one of the things was always, I mean, you and I, I talked about this um, many times over the years, where I think when you're when you're part of of the the field of contemporary music, like like you and I are, and we're so interested in this, and we we always have this desire of like uh, pushing things to their end games. You know, how far can I an, an idea go before it breaks or reaches the point of um, diminishing returns? So I remember your programming with Asimisi Masa really showed me a tremendous amount um, in terms of, you know, the, the partnerships and the commissions that you sought out, like with Alvin Lucier and Klaus Stefan Mankoff and Brian Furniau and um, Simonstein Anderson and Oyvind Torvunds and like all these people, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Tor- Torvund uh, Reinholdsen? Trond Reinholdsen. Trond Reinholdsen. Yeah. Trond, who, yeah. Whose work I I just thought these were the most amazing uh, works, and and they all had this sort of like authenticity. Uh, Lawrence Crane, uh, uh, yeah, the, and and you always seem to try to find the most sort of like pure version of something, and and I, I think that that's something that I really respected. I think that getting to know the community in Los Angeles, which, you know, like I, I had been teaching at CalArts, uh, where I was part of a music department for three years. Um, and then when that, you know, partnership ended, I really found myself kind of like, you know, a, a bit of a lone wolf because, you know, I, I don't have an office. I run pretty much run the series myself out of my apartment. Um, and but you know when I was thirty, I, I moved to Los Angeles, and um, my relationship in my twenties had come to an end, and so I felt kind of like I was a single, independent person for the first time in my adult life, and that turned into this, um, this great blessing because it was so easy I think along the the way of being in uh, Buffalo and in, in Oberlin and in San Diego and in Freiburg you have a sort of community built in who all cares about the same things as you do and uh, to a certain extent you know like I was only at CalArts a day or two a week but you still had those conversations that you could have and once I was no longer in that environment um, there was this real sense of like you know, if you have to make friends in a city, you have to go out and you have to like get to know people and you have to, um, you know, at first I just didn't talk to anybody about what I did because I was thinking like, oh, we're in this club, like listening to, you know, 80s new wave and trap music. Um, you know, and, and I was really, really happy to be there because I love those musics, but I, I didn't really know how to bring up like what I was interested in musically. So I just kind of kept it to myself and I was running the series as a quiet thing. Um, and sooner or later, my close friends who I was developing in Los Angeles started asking me about like my job and what I did and th- their perception of what a classical musician was. They, they all thought I was a composer. <laughs> um, but their, their perception was, you know, uh, like, I don't know, probably a, some painting of like Beethoven with, you know, like messy hair and like, you know, the sort of hunched over genius, like, you know, laboring over a piano score or something like that. Um, and, you know, whatever their perception was, it was a favorable one. 
And it was favorable enough that um, they asked if they could come to a concert sometime. And I would be like, I don't think you want to. <laughs> I, you know, just, just trust me on this one. You're, you're not going to like it. You know, it's just not going to, you're going to think I'm weird after, you know, you're going to think what I do is so, I'm not sure you're going to. And, and what I found was in the beginning, I really, really underestimated these, these folks because they didn't necessarily all have doctorates or even like college degrees, period. Um, but they were incredibly, incredibly alive and they were curious and they were intelligent and they were interesting and they were interested. And so all you had to do was open the door and let them decide. If you, if what, if the work you were doing was interesting, they were going to figure that out. And so simply by opening the door, those close friends who, who I trusted and sort of, um, just had a, you know, I, I was curious to hear what their response would be. And I knew they would love me, you know, whether they liked it or not, all said that was actually really incredibly interesting and beautiful. And I don't know what that was. I've never seen anything like that in my life, but, um, yeah, just let me know when the next one is. And if I can, if, if I'm allowed to come, I'll be there. And so then that's how that began. They started telling their friends and then those friends started telling their friends. And I think simply by, then I started asking them, what do you think about classical music? Like wh what you who have never entered a conservatory or a music school the, a day in your life, what are your thoughts? Like, what do you listen to in the bathtub or in the car or, and you know, you start to understand like what the value system is, what the priorities are. And you realize like, they're not wrong. You know, they're absolutely right to be interested in the things that they're interested in because they're really beautiful. And so that kind of was one of those things that revitalized my sense of, you know, like there are certain composers you discover when you're a teenager. And then like, because you've discovered the more, you know, hardcore drug, you, you look back and you go, oh, I couldn't be interested in that. But it turns out the thing that you were originally interested in as a teenager was pretty amazing. And you just need to remember to see things through those eyes again. And frankly, the, uh, the stuff I was talking about with um, learning much more about the art world um, sort of allows you to, because you know that you look at the art world with the same eyes that pe people from the art world are looking at you <laughs> as a classical <laughs> yeah. musician. Mm -hmm. So the same enthusiasm that I look at like Monet's paintings, let's say, like, I know they're not groundbreaking, uh, you know, in, in uh, 2021, uh, <laughs> or Egon Schiele's work, or, uh, you know, God knows what, like, I, I realize that this is not the latest thing <laughs> in painting, <laughs> but it's still really beautiful to me. Mm. And I'm allowed yeah. to appreciate those things. Mm. And, you know, if, if a gallery were to do a big Monet retrospective, I would be really happy about that. Mm. I, I don't know, what, or Van Gogh, or like, you know, just you. So, so I don't think that there's anything sacrilegious about kind of going back to, you know, pro programming the Robert Schumann quintet in the context of Haya Chernobyl's most recent mm. quintet. Or, sorry, uh, quintet in the sense of having electronics plus uh, string quartet. Um, but it's about figuring out how to um, make 
it's about breathing life into repertoire and, and something that is fully engaged with by a, a performer will always resonate, I think. And, and it's like what I was saying about the Stanislavski thing. Like, I don't think you need to, um, you know, you, you don't need to make a caricature out of this practice, but I think you do like engagement benefits everybody. Yep. Yeah. So, so I, I guess one of the surprises was realizing how much validity my points of view as a teenager had in my, in my present life and how right I was about, you know, to a certain extent, anytime I, I capture that energy of like, you know, rushing home with the drum set and not knowing how the pieces fit together, but like, you know, putting the tom-tom in this, you know, slot and then like the bass drum pedal kind of functions like this and the hi-hat, like, ah, who cares? Like put some, slap some, slap some symbols on that bad boy. And like, and you just go to town. <laughs> so I still, from a curatorial perspective, what I would say is that I spend a lot of time reading, researching, watching, just sort of swimming in the water, the, the wonderful water of the art world and the music world. But when I experience something and I get chills or my eyes start to mist up because and it doesn't have to be something emotional. It can just be something that is powerful or brilliant. Like um, Arthur Jaffa's Love is the Message and the Message is Death was one of those things where after the end of seven minutes, like if you, it, you know, if, if you're not like having a thousand mile stare and with like tears in your eyes, then you're, you know, you, you're not alive as far as I'm concerned. And, <laughs> yeah. or, or watching, you know, Sarah Hennies's uh, piece Contralto, which was one of those experiences for me where I wasn't planning on um, putting it into our program, but I was at home watching it. She was kind enough to send me a copy or, uh, you know, send me a link to watch it. And after I think like 34 minutes, I found myself bawling and, and I just thought to myself, okay, well, whatever resource I have, she's got it. Like mm. she, it, it's, it's at her disposal now. Uh, and I, I had that quite recently, um, with, uh, with a piece of Butch Morris, uh, this album called dust to dust. So whenever I get that sense of like, I don't know what this is, but I'm excited about it. And mm. I'm, I want to see what this contains. I think, you know, like we were just discussing about the 10,000 hours thing, like you do learn to trust that voice in your head that's telling you, yep. uh, this, this is a good one. This is something worth pursuing. I mean, Julius Eastman was, uh, I, I just figured like I, the, I heard the first four bars of the Holy Presence of Joan of Arc and I thought to myself, Scores must not exist for this because I would have heard this a billion times right now if this were performable. Mm. But it turned out like it, it just, we were right at the stage where it was just in the process of people like Clarice Jensen, um, you know, creating her version of that piece and like all these scholars doing the requisite work. Uh, so, so Julius Eastman, um, 
Butch Morris, Sarah Hennies. Thanks for your beautiful YouTube version of Feminine as well, which I listened to, which is, I think has something like 30,000 views right now, which is uh, quite something for a one hour and 10 minute contemporary music piece. <laughs> I will say that programming that took quite a bit of, uh, I'm very, very, very proud of that concert because I felt like there was a tremendous leap of faith in programming it simply because hmm. the score to it, especially at the time, was very, very skeletal. And um, Richard Valtuto, mm -hmm. um, who, I, who I have to give total credit for, for introducing me to the compositions of Julius Eastman. I had known the name forever being from Buffalo, but um, I didn't really realize he was a composer and, until Richard pointed that out. And uh, yeah, like we had, I think, two days to put that performance together. Oh. And none of us knew anything about what to make of the skeletal score. Right, okay. So... So, you know, like, I could not have been more nervous, but I thought to myself, like, if this, if this goes how I think it could go, we might really have something on our hands. Susan Sontag said this thing about, um, anytime two people come into dialogue, sincere dialogue with one another, intelligence is produced. And I think that for me, living in Los Angeles has been the greatest gift because the creative community here is so full of vitality and um, intelligence, but in such a different um, form than, than anything that I had encountered in, like along the path of you know, the various universities and, and conservatories. I, I guess all I'm saying is that the more you kind of respect the, the world and are fascinated by and curious about the world, the more the world tends to be fascinated and curious about you. That's a good ending. I, it could be better. <laughs> I was going to ask, um, what drives your practice forward or where do you see yourself in the next five to ten years, whether within the series or as an independent curator, art communicator? It's a great question. Uh, there, was, there was a moment... Okay, th th this is important. So after um, things didn't work out at CalArts, which was... It was an incredibly, incredibly devastating moment for me because it was like the balance of the, you know, paychecks from CalArts, from Monday evening concerts and from freelance work was just like barely allowing me to scrape by in, in MacArthur Park uh, in my studio. And, and so I felt like the balance of those three things was giving me um, just enough to, to sort of sneak by and, and be housed. And, um, but, you know, there was a very palpable sense of like, like I don't know what I would do if one of these layers, um, you know, of of income were to leave the equation, and my sort of worst uh, fear happened, and uh, you know, the job went to somebody else, and I all of a sudden was, you know, really thinking like, is this the end of my life as a musician? Um, like, what am I? Like, I don't see a way to continue doing this. Um, I had the good fortune of the French consulate putting me on a flight to Paris to go and listen to concerts uh, at the Manifest Festival at Yercom. It was just some sort of like freak happenstance 
where the French consulate had been so gracious. And it was like a day after I got the news that I hadn't gotten the job. And I'm, I go to my flight and I'm just sitting there and I had bought um, this book um, a couple of days before by Hans Ulrich Obrist called Lives of the Artists, Lives of the Architects. And I got on this plane, uh, which was called Wow Airlines, <laughs> this uh, Icelandic thing, which is now defunct. Um, and uh, it was like the ultimate budget airline. But I, I was not complaining because, uh, you know, they got me a ticket to go to Paris and I was just so happy I was so happy to be on the flight, but you know, I was like in the middle seat and, um, I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm just going to like watch a a fresh Prince marathon or like a, a, you know, Martin marathon or something (laughs) on the flight. Uh, but I look at the back of my seat, it's gray plastic, no TV to speak of. And I have a, you know, 13 hour flight to, you know, Iceland and Paris. And, and I just thought to myself, like, I can, I can never sleep on flights. We're really about to do this. <laughs> so I pulled out Hans Ulrich's uh, book and um, I started reading these interviews and it was his interviews with, uh, you know, it was like Frank Gehry and uh, David Hockney and Zaha Hadid and um, Felix Gonzalez Torres and, um, you know, just uh, Gerhard Richter, like all of these people whose names I knew and whose work I kind of knew, but a lot of names I didn't know, Marina Abramovich. And I just remember having this feeling of like just recognizing my own ambition in that book, just wanting to be around artists, wanting to be around people who thought the way that these people were thinking and I thought to myself, well, I haven't been fired from Monday evening concerts yet. Um, so what if I already have the job that I want? You know, what, um, I, I, my friend wanted, got, uh, he took a sabbatical from his job at uh, Saint Laurent, um, where he was a like interior uh, architect. And, and he, he was painting for a year. And, and, um, he said, you, you know, maybe I don't want to be um, like an interior architect. I want to be a painter. And I said, I think you want to be Picasso. I don't think you want to be a painter. Um, meaning that I think sometimes we emulate somebody in, an, in another discipline and, not, and we don't realize that we're already doing that thing. It's just up to us to do it with a level of focus and a level of discipline and a level of insight. And I realized, well, maybe I could do my job as well as Hans Ulrich was doing his and that I could have the same sort of vitality of community if I were to, uh, if I were simply to apply myself and realize that I already have the job I, I want and I could transform it. And right there and then I resolved to continue doing uh, Monday evening concerts with even more sort of reckless abandon than I had for the, the prior years. And, so, and this, like, if whether I live or die, I'm going to go to bat for this cause because it's who I am and, it, and it's what I care about. I think what I, what I realized is I, there was no upgrade from my job. I already had the, my dream job, but it was my responsibility to transform it into the thing that I wanted it to become. And I think, so with that in mind, I started to realize that maybe we were 
and I, I say this a bit facetiously, but also rather sincerely, I think of us as a visual arts series um, that happens to give musical performances rather than I, as a classical music, uh, mu- music series. Mm. So what I see us doing is more and more bringing the sort of world of visual art and literature into the concert hall. I mean, we had collaborations planned with uh, Ann Carson this year, and we were going to do Beckett's um, uh, Quad on one of our programs. Um, I see us doing much, much more um, visual art and literature, literary collaborations over the next few years. I, and I see us doing a lot more collaborative work with visual arts institutions, meaning concerts at LACMA, the Getty, various um, architectural gems in Los Angeles. Um, Hauser and Wirth certainly has been an immense, immense uh, blessing in in my life. I mean, we did for for Philip Gustin in the context of Augustine retrospective, which has always been one of my dreams. Uh, we did a Guillermo Quitka a program in the uh, a, a program rooted in, I would say, Lachemann and Wagner in the context of Guillermo Quitka's paintings. Um, so I see us going much further and much more confidently mm. in the direction of being a sort of visual arts series that's specialized in, quote, classical music, whatever the fuck that means mm. <laughs> in 2021. <laughs> what, whatever that means, yeah, that's what we are. Well, that's what we're doing.